if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. And let's go before the Lord with the word of prayer. And Father, once again, we just come before you as a church and just ask that you'll speak to us through your word. You'll speak clearly and speak to us by your spirit. And I just ask that all of our hearts will be open to receive what you have to say. And we just thank you that you'll draw us closer to you and draw us closer as a church through hearing your word. And we thank you for doing that and being with us tonight in Jesus' name. So, so far in Matthew 18, we've gone through the first nine verses. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 14 tonight. And the recurring theme that you're going to find through these first 14 verses is that the kingdom of God is going to be made up of or it's going to consist of those that have humbled themselves as little children. What he's talking about through in these first 14 verses, and actually this whole entire chapter is, then once we become little children, how we relate to each other, how we treat each other, and also how concerned we are for each other. That's what he's going to talk to us and has been talking to us about. And so he tells the disciples we've seen that if you don't be converted and if you aren't converted and humble yourself as a little child, then you cannot enter, can't be part of the kingdom. And once that happens, though, once we do become as little children, we need to receive the other people that we see around us that are little children. We need to receive them just like we would receive the Lord himself. That's what he says. If you want to go back and read those first nine verses... And so he goes on to say that because those that have believed, he says, they've become united to me. They, it's just like you're receiving me if you receive them. And he says, so therefore you need to be, we need to all be very careful that we don't cause any one of these brothers or sisters around us to stumble or to be offended. Got to be careful of that. And he further goes on to say that you have to get all those offenses out of within yourself. Anything that you cherish that's going to take you away from your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, we need to be either willing to cut it off or pluck it out. In other words, he's calling for drastic measures in dealing with sin. You be killing sin, as we said last week, or sin will be killing you. That's a famous John Owen quote. And so tonight we're going to see where our Lord further emphasizes that concern. He says, you don't want to offend them. It's to the point of where you would be better off if you offended one of your brothers and sisters. He says, and to a Jew, they would have been like, whoa, to have a millstone, a big stone tied around your neck and have you thrown into the sea because you weren't going to be coming up out of the bottom on that one. You were going to sink down like a rock and that'd be the end of you. So that's a pretty stern warning he's giving there. And so <laughs> he's going on tonight to emphasize why he's making such a big deal about that, that our concern for others in the church should be the same as his concern and the father's concern is. So it's very serious how we treat other people. So let's read verses 1 to 14. We'll just read all 14 verses. We're going to deal with verses 10 to 14, but we'll read all 14 just to set the context again. So beginning in verse 1 in Matthew chapter 18, we read, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Truly or verily, I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child. Remember we said he was holding a little child the whole time he's talking. The same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. 
But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be. That's part of our perfection, that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for you to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having both eyes to be cast into hell fire. And here in verse 10, he says, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Oh, well, how think ye, or what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it truly, I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, he says, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So we're starting and picking up in verse 10, and, you know, it's real easy, I think I've said this before, to pass over those first two words and to keep reading that we have there in verse 10, and that is that take heed. And Jesus, though, in those two words, he is issuing a warning. So he's saying you need to pay attention and you need to beware of what he's going to say after that. Don't let this happen to you is what he's saying. Take heed. It's a word for watch. You need to watch and be careful and make sure this doesn't happen. And that warning is not given to individuals there. When it says, take heed that ye, that's a plural you. He's talking to the group. He's saying, you as a group need to make sure that no one here, no one in this group is despising. So in other words, he's saying this includes everybody, not just the select few, not just the pastors. This is everyone needs to take heed and beware what? That you're not despising one of these little ones. And he's saying everyone matters, every individual. Because look in verse 6. It's easy to pass over some of this stuff, but look what he had said back in verse 6. He says, but whoso shall offend one. So he makes it a point. He doesn't say to offend the church, does he? He says, but whosoever shall offend just one, one person, one of the little ones, one who is considered the least. And you look down in verse 14. So that person that you think is unimportant, that one is important to Jesus. And here in verse 14, we see that one is important to the Father. Verse 14, it says, even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven. And once again, we see that one, he's concerned about every individual in here that one of these little ones should perish. And that's important that we see that. We're not to despise them, he says. That's what he says in, in verse 10. He says, take heed that you despise. And there again, he brings up the not one. So he says, don't despise not one of these little ones that is sitting next to you in here or is sitting around from you. Or it could be they're just sitting across the room from you. We can't despise any of them. Anybody that calls themselves a brother that's or that's a Christian. And so what does that word despise mean in this context? 
And here, that word despise means that you look down on somebody with contempt or aversion because in your eyes, they have no value. That's what he's talking about there when he says despise. You, you look at somebody with contempt like, who does this person, they mean nothing to me. And you treat them that way. In other words, in pride, you scorn them, treat them as if they're nothing, and you just don't take the person seriously. It's just somebody that's easy to ignore. You see they got a problem. You see they don't look happy. It's just you just walk right on by them. That's what he's talking about here. And he says we need to take heed that we don't do that. And it's actually the very opposite of what he says up in verse 5. Because up in verse 5 he says, but whoso shall receive one such little one. And that word for receive there is a word of hospitality. It's a word like to welcome someone. And he's saying, so whoso will receive one of these little ones is the same as receiving me. But he's saying we need to take heed that we don't do just the opposite. That we're not receiving or welcoming somebody, but we are despising them or not taking them seriously. Not giving them any consideration for their needs, their well-being, how they're doing. That they need fellowship just like everyone else does. To despise somebody in that sense would be like you just wouldn't bother to talk to them. Just easy to walk by them. You never invite them over to your house. You would invite everyone else. But when you think of them, you're just like, I'd just rather not have them over for no really good reason. Or you just wouldn't want to make them feel welcome and bring them into part of your group because you feel like it might kind of mess your group up. My group's set pretty well and doing pretty well. So we have a perfect illustration of somebody that has that attitude and most of the bad examples in the Bible are with the religious leaders, <laughs> with the religious people. But you all know this story well. Over in Luke 7, you know, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to come over to have dinner with him, and he accepts the invitation. And I think I've talked about this before. You might not remember, but when they would have those kind of dinners, it was like a, a community thing. So you would have the invited guests would be at the main table, but you would have the people from town would be kind of there listening and watching. They'd be off on the periphery of the walls. So apparently in the periphery of these walls is this woman that we read about. It says she comes up behind Jesus. So they didn't have chairs. He'd have been on the ground. His feet would have been behind him. He would have been reclining to eat with his feet behind him. And she comes up behind him, we read, and begins weeping and taking her hair and wiping his feet. And then she had this ointment that is like a year's wages for a man, a costly ointment. It would have been probably her greatest possession. And she broke that box that it came in and she's anointing his feet. So we're talking about we're not to despise the little ones. And so here's somebody here that she was despised in her community. She would have considered not a good woman at all. She had a reputation. But the Lord had done something here. And that Pharisee that invited Jesus the Bible kind of lets us in on his thoughts. It said, the Lord, you, you weren't hiding your thoughts from him. The Holy Spirit revealed it to him. But here's what we read. He's seeing this woman, and this man is sitting here thinking some hard thoughts about this woman, despising her. And listen to what he says. It says, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him, Jesus, saw it, saw this woman, broken and repentant, and worshipped his feet, it says, he spake within himself. And this is what he said to himself. This man, he, he speaks contemptuously of the Lord. This man, if he were a prophet, and I thought he was, but now I can tell he's not. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. I mean, you can just hear the contempt and how he's talking about her, can't you? 
And yet, sometimes, don't we do that with each other at times? I mean, I could say I've been guilty of it in the past. But you can hear the contempt, and that's the very thing Jesus is saying to us. Take heed. He's saying, take heed, beware that you do not despise or hold anyone in this church in contempt. Pay attention, lest we do it. Why would he say that? Why would the Lord say that? Pretty obvious. But let me just put it this way. Let me ask you a question. What kind of people does God choose? Well, we know he chooses the kind like the woman in Luke 7. But does he choose the smartest people? Everyone says no. We know that. Does he choose the famous people? Athletes, politicians, kings. Does he choose those people? Does he choose the well-born, the well-heeled people, the sophisticated people, the ones, you know, that I'm uncomfortable around because they know exactly which side of the plate the fork and the spoon's supposed to go on and how many are supposed to be there. And they are the ones that they do not put their elbows on the table when they're eating chicken. So I'm saying those are the sophisticated, the well-born. I'm, I'm asking the question, is that who the Lord calls? And he tells us, I mean, those names, all those I brought up there, that's all right there in 1 Corinthians. And you know what he says? He doesn't say he doesn't call any of them because if you read church history, he's called a few well-born people, and he's called a few famous, and he's called a few smart people. And number one is the Apostle Paul. By all accounts, he is considered a genius, even people in the world. He is a genius, his mind. So he calls some, but not very many. Because the kind he calls, I believe, is what it says is he calls the foolish. And that's people like us, I guess, that would be just foolish enough to believe that evolution is not true. And I guess because we're just a bunch of mainly construction workers in here that just don't know how to think right. You know, that's, but that's who God calls. We're just foolish enough to believe what the Bible says. And it says he calls the weak. And by the weak, he's contrasting that with the powerful with the ones that have status and authority. What's the word? Gravitas. That's what they like to use in politics. Those kind of people. No, he says he calls the weak, the ones that don't have any social standing whatsoever, like this woman that we just talked about in Luke chapter 7. Those are the ones he, he calls. And he calls the ones that are called the base, the despised, and the ones that are nothing to the world. And so what we need to think about is if Almighty God has chosen those kind of people to inhabit his kingdom. We need to think about who are we to hold anybody in contempt because of what they are, what their background is, what their education is, how they, they carry themselves, that they're not sophisticated, that they're not cool. And I mean, I know I've talked about this before, but it kind of fits in right here. This is what he's saying. And treat them as a person of little worth when we know that God has given them worth, hasn't he? Anybody he calls is his child and, and saves, just like that woman. She would have been a woman of no worth in that community whatsoever. But yet God had given her worth. The Lord had. We're going to see there's another really good illustration of that in the Bible. And that's what was going on with the quote-unquote cool, sophisticated members of the Corinthian church. They were doing this very thing that the Lord said we should not be doing. And what was happening is they were having their church love feast. And what does Paul have to get on them about? He says, you all have got all this food and you mu they must have had some good wine. 
And he says, you all are eating that food and drinking that wine and other people are sitting in the church that aren't as well-to-do to you. Because most people, this is the way it is. Most people that lived back in the days of Jesus were dirt poor. And literally, that's why it was such a big deal that all he did was give them bread. Because if I came here tonight and I said, I'm going to give a loaf of bread to every family in here, you guys would be like, what a cheapskate. We knew it all along. <laughs> the guy says he's a giver and all he can do is give us all a loaf of bread. But I'm saying back then, you give somebody a loaf of bread or you give them that daily bread and they were, what were they ready to do with the Lord? They were ready to make him a king. So you can see that people didn't have stuff and they come to this love feast and here they're like thinking, wow, I know this guy over here, Charlie, he's got a big house and lots of bread. But yet they weren't getting any of it. That's what Paul said. They're sitting there hungry. And he says, this is quite a spectacle, you Corinthians. We'll turn over there in a minute. He says, we have what is supposed to be a love feast to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we got some of you sitting over here full, belching and drunk. And here's other ones over here looking at you, and their stomachs are growling. And they have nothing in those stomachs. He's saying, this is a, quite a spectacle, and it's not right. So turn over to 1 Corinthians 11, if you would. Put something there in Matthew 18. So this is all in light of that Jesus is given a warning to take heed that we do not despise those little ones. So 1 Corinthians 11. Beginning in verse 20, Paul writes, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not, he's saying, to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper. So you eat yours before anyone else has had a chance to eat his, he's saying. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. Verse 22, he can't believe this. He's like, what? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? And here's our word, the same word, or despise you, the church of God. So he's saying they're doing the very thing the Lord Jesus Christ warned us not to do. He says, despise you, the church of God, and shame them that have not. You're, you're making it obvious they have nothing to eat because you're not sharing with them. He says, you're putting them to shame. What can I even say to you is what he says. He says, am I supposed to praise you for this? And he says, I praise you not. To me, that's like a pretty sharp rebuke he gives those people there. He says, I'm, what am I supposed to do with what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing that's going on there? Am I supposed to give you a praise report over this? He says, there is no way. I can't believe this is happening there. But look what's happened. I'll tell you, some of them, though, he tells them, some of you, because you're living that way and treating other people that way, some of you are paying a price for doing that. And so when Jesus gave that warning to take heed, We've got to take his warning seriously because some of the Corinthians didn't. And so look down in verse 28 and look what happens. So Paul here, this is what, like I said, before we have communion, it'd be a good thing to do before you get here. But he says in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. If he's examined himself and everything's okay. But he says in verse 29, he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself because he's not discerned the Lord's body, which is what he was just talking about up in those previous verses. And he says, for this cause, many, not just a couple, but many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. If we would judge ourselves, he says, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, he's saying, if you're one of the Lord's, he's going to chasten you if we're not living right. 
and not obeying him. He says, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. And here's verses 33 and 34 says, this is what he's talking about, what they were doing. Wherefore, my brethren, because of what I just said, when you come together to eat, make sure you wait for everybody to get there and share your food with everybody. Tarry ye one for another. And if any man hungers, let him eat at home. And if you're so can't wait to eat, then just get you a bite at home and then bring your food to share with everybody else. That you come not together unto condemnation. And he says, the rest I will put in order. So can we see how serious what the Lord's saying? Let's go back to Matthew 18. How serious that is what he says there in verse 10. He says, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. It's serious. Now, I will say, though, there's people I've found, this is kind of, I guess, a perk, if you want to put it that way, of being pastor, that I sometimes get privy to things going on, I guess for good or for bad, but in this sense, for good, that I'm finding out through conversations that it's not like that's non-existent here, Sue. So this, this is no getting on anybody's case because I've heard of cases that have blessed me that are just the opposite of people that are seeing a brother or sister that has a need and no one's watching out for him and they are taking it upon themselves to watch out for this person and minister to them and encourage them and, and, and several different cases I've heard of that and I'm, I'm like I'm really impressed with that and the thing is they're not making a big deal about it because I didn't know anything about it so I'm saying we should all have that attitude though shouldn't we because both cases are just people that just saw somebody that was just struggling and they decide I'm going to make a friend of that person and help them out as a brother and sister. And I'll, I'll tell you what else you find out when you do that is we look at people on the outside and we think, well, they don't seem like much and they don't seem like they're doing all that well. But then when you take the time to get to know somebody like that, somebody the Lord puts on your heart, because we can't do that with everybody, and you start talking to them and you start finding out, hey, they're a lot more serious about the Lord than I ever would have thought. And their background is so bad that when I see where they're at now, that is pretty impressive what the God's done for them. And you start realizing, and they have some things that I can learn from and they can share with me. And that's the benefits I think we're missing out on a lot of times. When we just don't take the time to look and see, well, there's somebody that's got a need and, and there's a way we can minister to them and help them out. And like I said, there's probably a lot more of that that goes on that I'm aware of and praise God for it. So I say that in a positive way. But the second reason I think the Lord is saying here in verse 10 that we should not despise those little ones whom he has chosen, he gives right here in the verse. <laughs> so in verse 10, he says, take heed that you despise not one of those little ones. And look what he says. He says, for I say unto you, and that, I, that's an emphatic. He's saying, listen, I am telling you something. <laughs> that I is emphatic. I say unto you, your Lord and Savior, that these people... You shouldn't despise them. And here is why in the second half of verse 10, it says, because that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of my father, which is in heaven. And he's saying that is a reason that we should not despise people. Now, I don't think that personally, it, some people take this that he's saying everybody has their own personal guardian angel. Well, really, you'd be building a whole idea philosophy off of one verse. The only other thing that even alludes to it is when Peter was in prison and he got released by the angel and he came to the house and the girls like, the people are like, that couldn't be Peter. That's got to be his angel. But I mean, you'd be setting a teaching or a doctrine that every one of us has a little angel next to him based on that. I don't personally don't really think that's what he's saying. In other words, I don't think 
as popular as the movie is, that all of us have a little Clarence that's assigned to us that's waiting for a bell to ring so he can get his wings. You know, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. <laughs> Great movie, I guess, but not very scriptural. But here's what I do think the Bible clearly teaches in more than one place is that God has assigned angels to watch and care for his saints that are on this earth. And man, do we have the testimonies here to back that up? And why is that? Because we are that special to the Lord. Can you imagine that? That time when your car's spinning off the road, all the testimonies we give, or you're getting ready to fall off a ladder, and somehow, supernaturally, you're not hurt, or just whatever it is. I mean, that's because he's given his angels charge concerning you. How many people in here are killed in car wrecks in our church? I'm saying it's nobody that I know of. I've missed one if it's happened, and that's because his angels are given charge over us. Listen, we've got angelic secret service agents that are way more effective and powerful than the president has. We really do. <laughs> I mean, that's not just me saying that. Because listen, here's what the Bible says. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits? So these angels that are way more powerful and great in might than we are, but yet they're sent to serve us by the Lord. That's what he's saying, Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering, serving spirits sent forth to serve or minister for those who will inherit salvation? And that's how much we mean to him. We're his children that are going to inherit salvation, and he's sending angels down here to take care of us when we need help. That's what he's talking about. And we all, Psalm 91, every day you should be praying that for your family and yourselves. When you get up, when you get in that vehicle, don't forget to do that. But what it says is, he shall give his angels, not individually, just the angels. we got angels in charge of us. I think some of us, it probably takes at least a dozen. But he gives his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. They keep you in all of your ways, and they will bear you up in their hands lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. You know, me and Greg laugh about all the, all the scaffolding that has collapsed underneath us. <laughs> and never a broken boat. I mean, you know, I just praise God for it. I mean, painting is supposed to be one of the most dangerous professions there is. And God watches over us. He has. It's just the Lord. <laughs> just very thankful for that. So what he's saying here is that God cares. He's saying we shouldn't despise each other because God cares for us so much. That he's given his angels, he's given angels charge to watch over us as we're moving throughout our day and keeping us from accidents and keeping us from trouble. And so what he's saying is, hey, they're just there at the throne waiting for God's orders because look at what it says there in verse 10. It says that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of the Father. That behold the face of the Father, that's court talk. That's king court talk. People that are in the court, when you have the face of the king, then he tells you what to do and you have his favor. And they're saying they are before the throne of God, before his face, and just waiting for him to dispatch him to wherever it's being needed. And that's what they do. And so he's saying, hey, you, you think this, this person in church is of little worth? He's saying, how could you think that? They have angels guarding them. A person of little worth that has... I mean, only the president and Donald Trump get Secret Service people, right? They have their bodyguards, not just anybody. So he's saying, hey, special people get bodyguards. And everyone in this church that's a Christian has heavenly bodyguards watching out. That's a blessing. 
<laughs> so we move on down here to verse 11. And yeah, so it's, it's debatable. I mean, personally, whatever, there's, there's uh, scholars, quote unquote, that say this verse shouldn't be here. They'll say, well, what it says is true, but it wasn't in the earlier manuscripts. But I, I just say whatever. I, let's say, let's just say it's true because I think it's true. It obviously is true. Let's just pretend like it should be there because it should be. But he's saying, we say, hey, the angels are serving people in here. You look around and you think, these aren't the ones that I would have chosen. But guess, they are the ones, all of us in here, they're the ones that Jesus came to save. That's what he's saying there in verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. So who did the Lord come to save? We talked about this Sunday. He came to save the lost, the ones that the world considers low life. And that's what we were. And you're like, not me. I was never low life. You can call yourself low life. And I would just say, were you really lost? Did you ever really see yourself as lost? Because to say you're lost means you're wicked. To say you're lost means you're vile. To say you're lost means you could do no good. None. The poison of asp was under your lips. Your mouth, if you were a lost person, was full of cursing and bitterness. Even if you grew up in church here. Lost means feet that were swift to shed blood. Not literally, but with criticism, gossip, backbiting, resentment, and hatred. That's all the ways people shed blood. And it means that the fear of God, if you were lost, was never before your eyes. Was not before your eyes. No fear of God. And it also means if you were lost, that when you stood, if you died that way before the judgment seat of Christ, your mouth would have been stopped. You'd have had no excuse. Nothing to say for yourself. Nothing to justify yourself. And all of what I just said comes out of Romans 3. And that's a description of every sinner that's in this world. And so I would just ask the question, how many in here were lost? I'll tell you what, the safest thing to do right then is to get your hand up. And I'll tell you why. It really is. And I'll tell you why. If you were lost, and I'm putting my hand way up. I'll put them both up and my feet up except I'd fall down. Right? <laughs> then you were a low life in God's eyes, as low as it gets. You were a low life. Because guess what? There is only one group of people that the Lord Jesus Christ came to save. Do you realize that? And you know who that is? It's right there in verse 11. So we better get in that crowd quick. For the Son of Man is come to save whom? There's only one group of people, and that is the lost, the base of society. And when we start talking, which we shouldn't do too much of, of what we were like before we came to Christ, I mean, if that's not base, we, we laugh about things sometimes, and, we, and I've done it too much myself, talk about how funny things were, but it wasn't funny to the Lord. And we were in a bad way in a really bad way, the base of society. So if that's the case, if all of us, and listen, everyone in this room that's saved had to be the base, the low life of society in God's eyes. And Brother Hamilton would say that he was the worst. Everyone should be able to say that. It, you know, I mean, that's what it's all about. You've got to see how wicked and vile you are before you'll go to the great physician like we talked about Sunday. And so if that's the case, though, what we're talking about here is I'm saying, if he came to seek and save the lost, why should any of us, as bad as we were, despise anyone else in here? They're worse than we were if we were the worst. 
or even somebody out in the world. We tend to be like, you know, it's because of the lives we live now and we look at them and we look at them with contempt like, man, I cannot believe that's the way they were. Well, read Titus. Titus says, once you were that same way until the mercy and grace of God came. So that's not like we condone sin and say, well, no, all that stuff they're doing is all right. That's not what we're saying. But to look at them with a contemptuous way, like I can't believe they were that way when we were that way, <laughs> weren't we? I was. I was pretty bad. So that's the same. He came to seek and save. That was the loss. And, not, and since he's done that, he, he's going to go on to say he is very concerned about those that lost people that he saved that are in this room right now. Concerned about us when we stray. And that's what we have here in verses 12 and 13. I would think you, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, he's not concerned about it. He says, oh, he'll leave the 99 and go take care of that one. The Lord is concerned. He'll leave all the rest. And everyone in here is strayed at some point to some degree, right? And he's saying, I'll leave all the rest and come after you. We're back to that one. And I'll come after you. Leave all the rest of them behind because I've got a concern for you as an individual. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Basically, the Bible more than once calls us sheep, and sheep are really ignorant. And so when they go astray, they are not trying to find their way back. They're pretty much unconcerned because they're not smart enough to worry about it, I guess. And so what we see in there is, though, we see here in verse 12, the way it works is if the Lord didn't come after us, look at the end of verse 12. He says he has to go into the mountains and seek. They're not seeking him. When we go astray at any point, we're not the ones seeking the Lord. He is the one that's coming after us. And we've got to be glad that he does. He's seeking us because he's concerned about us because we're his children. He always takes the initiative. That's what we see there. But what I'll tell you, I want to talk a little bit here at the beginning of verse 12. I like the way he presents this parable to his disciples. Because you know why? He doesn't just present the truth to them. He wants to get them thinking about what he's saying. Look what he says there at the beginning of verse 12. He goes, what think ye? What do you think? I'll tell you, I'm going to present a real-life situation in front of you. Because if you go over there to Israel now, you'll see sheep and farmers. You won't have to go too far, and you'll see them taking care of their sheep. And it would have been real common back then. I'm going to put this in front of you, and I want you to just think about what I'm telling you, and then tell me what you think. So he's saying, all right, you despise one of these little ones. You don't like this weak, wandering, disease-ridden sheep. What do you think I should do? He's saying, you think I should get rid of them? You know, you're thinking to yourself, man, all these sheep like that do is bring fleas around the rest of our sheep, and we're scratching all the time. I like to get rid of them. And he's like, well, let me tell you, why don't you think about the shepherds that you know, the shepherds that you're watching? And when they go after that one sheep, like this man will do, are they doing the wrong thing? What think ye? You think they shouldn't be wasting their time with that one? Think about it and tell me. Should they just worry about the majority and forget about just the one or two? Like, what's the loss of one or two? I went out to Paul's farm here not too long ago, put my boots on, met him out there, got a firsthand experience of his farm, and Johnny Stewart was out there, and me and Johnny were talking, and he told me that the difference between Paul and these other farmers, cattle people, whatever, in Shelby County, and I would say probably all farmers in Shelby County, but is that he cares about every one of the cows that he has. And so he's got all these cows. I don't know how many. There's quite a few of them that are having babies. 
And he's like, the majority of them, and, and when Paul went on vacation, his guys had just let him have babies everywhere in the farm. And Paul's like, we got to get things in order. I want them all brought up into the barn by my house. He cares about them. So he's got all those cows up there. I saw them right next to his house. And Johnny's telling me he gets up at all hours of the night to watch and make sure if there's any problems, he is there helping them with their births all hours of the night to check on them. And so what does that tell you? For him... Every one of his cows has value, doesn't it? Doesn't want to lose any of them. That's what I'm getting out of that. Doesn't want to lose one. And from what I understand, he loses very few. And those other guys, I'm told, they don't care. It's just like, yeah, what's one or two? I'll still make a pretty good profit. But that's the concern Paul has. I thought that was a really good way of showing that. And that's what the Lord is saying here. I got the 99, but I'm still concerned about that one. I don't want to lose any of them. They're my children. I care about them. That's what he's saying here. He's a good shepherd, and, and he's that way towards every individual in that church. So he's saying we need to be careful. He doesn't despise anyone that's his child here. And he's just saying, he's telling us, he's saying, hey, you just need to be careful and watch out that you don't have an attitude or a contemptuous way of looking or looking at somebody like they're not worth much of anybody that's in this church. And that doesn't mean everybody's got to be your best friend. We're not saying that. But you've got to value them the way he values them. And he's saying, what think ye? Think about it. Think about what I'm telling you. This is the way I and the Father look at our children. He's saying we should think the same way. That's what he's doing. This has been quite a few years ago, back in the 80s. I was in Brother Hamilton's office. I was in there over something else, but I was all worked up that there was people in the church that I felt like, you know, were compromising. They weren't living a sold-out life like they should. I'm like, you know, we've all heard this. I mean, this is kind of my attitude back then. Look, we've all heard the same teaching. We all ought to be overcoming. We all ought to be, you know, being sold out to Jesus. And so what he did at the time was pretty good. He did to me what Jesus did to his disciples. He let me go on for a few minutes, and he sat there, and he said, all right. <laughs> he said, John, you're a smart guy who likes to think. And I knew I was getting set up. <laughs> But I thought he did a really good job doing it. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> and this is what he went on to say. He, he brought up a person. I'm not going to name the person. They're not here now. But he said, he goes, let me ask you something. He says, what about this sister here, he tells me. He says, tell me what you would do if you were me, is what he asked me. He says, her husband's a bum. He runs around on her, doesn't pay the bills. And here's this woman trying to keep her house together. She's got two small children. And she's struggling in a lot of ways. And she's a relatively new Christian. And he said, so she calls me up and she comes into my office crying because she wants to trust the Lord. But she feels right now she needs help. And he asked me, what would you do? And all of a sudden I'm realizing, uh-oh, I got set up, but I needed to get set up. Because that opened my eyes. I'd never looked at it from that point of view before. And I thought, I was glad he did that. I like to have things black and white myself. Black and white makes it easy. Tend to look at things black and white, and I'm like, I'm realizing things are just not as black and white as I like to make them. And I'm asked, thinking to myself, was I really concerned about her as a child of God? Did I have any reason to think she wasn't? Just because a case like that, somebody, I mean, I didn't know about her case in particular, but the other cases that I'm upset about. Is my concern really for a brother and sister that's struggling for whatever reason? Or is it just, I want to have it, things be my way, black and white, everybody on the same page type thing?
Nobody's excusing sin. I'm not doing that. Nobody's saying it's not okay to trust the Lord, but I'm saying is it ever okay to despise somebody in our church that's struggling? Is it ever okay not to pray for somebody that we've even seen gone astray? Is that ever okay? So if you would, I talked about this the other day before the meeting, but I'd like us to look at it. And if you would, turn over to 1 John chapter 5. I want us to look at this verse. Because honestly, I had not thought a whole lot about this verse until I had to teach through this book at prison. And it started dawning on me that, man, this is a heavy responsibility here. And I don't know that I've always looked at things this way as far as a promise. But so we got in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 14, this is the confidence. We all know this, these verses. This is the confidence we can have in him and our Lord that if we ask anything according to his will, and we're right with him, not living in sin, it says he hears us. We have got his ear. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we can know that we have, we already have the petitions that we desired of him. And usually we'll stop right there at the end of verse 15. But what he does is he's given us a, an example of how to use that principle right here in verse 16. He says, if any man see his who? His brother sin. So you see your brother's sin. What does he say you should do about that? Criticize him? Be glad? Realize he's just think he's probably going to be out of church. He'll fall away in no time. What does he say to do? See a sin which is not unto death. So there's only one sin unto death, the, the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So he said you can't pray for that one. But any other sin, he's saying, look in the middle there. He shall ask what he just talked about in verses 14 and 15. And look, what it, look at the promise after that. And he, God, shall give him life. For them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, is that a promise that we keep in our back pocket ready to pull out when we see somebody having a problem or sinning? I mean, it wasn't for me, but I'm telling you, since I've seen that, I've actually used it. You want to stretch your faith? Stretch your faith with that. You see somebody having a hard time, struggling, doing something that you don't think is right? that they've sinned in some way. He's saying there, right there, he promises it's his will. You can pray. And he says right there, I didn't make it up. God will give him life. If you ask in faith, he will. Ask according to his will. And he's saying that's his will. And you'll have that petition. Boy, wouldn't that change things? Wouldn't that change your attitude towards somebody that you see is not doing what you think they ought to do? If you're praying and trusting God that he is going to give them life rather than rejoicing that they fell or thinking that's just the way I always thought they were. What a way to exercise faith, I would say. So let's go back to Matthew 18, and we're going to move on to verse 13. Because he says, when that sinning brother repents and comes back to the Lord, what should our attitude be? Look what he says. He says, if so be that he finds it, that shepherd finding that one lost sheep, he says, truly, I say unto you, here we have it again. I'm telling you. He rejoices more of that sheep than of the 90 and 9 which went not astray. So what should our at it? We should rejoice that somebody has come back that had gone and you knew they were in a bad path. And I, I could think of somebody right now, I could not be happier. They were in a way worse path than I ever realized. And God brought them back. Why would we want to hold that past where they were over their heads? We should want to rejoice. And he's saying we should want to rejoice because that is how our good shepherd 
that leads us, our Savior, he's rejoicing. And the Father's rejoicing. So it's not that he doesn't rejoice over the 99. That's not his point, is it? But there was concern about this person that had left and had gotten away. And also, there's a lot of labor involved in bringing them back. It said that he had to go and leave those, and he's walking through those mountains, it says. That would not be easy <laughs> over there and seeing those mountains. They would not be easy. A lot of cracks, crevices, easy to fall down, rocks to climb over. I mean, he took a lot of effort to go get him back. And that sheep that had left was in grave danger. That's why he's saying he's rejoicing, because there would have been all kinds of wolves, lions, steep cliffs that could have fallen over and been killed. So he's saying the fact that that sheep is back is there's good reason to rejoice. It was a problem. It took lots of effort. And so the trauma's over, and we are so happy. And that's the way we are. I'm going to tell you a story. That's the way we are about everyday worldly events. Much more we should be that way about spiritual things. So listen to this. Some of you might remember this. In 2010, there was a mining accident in Chile in August 120-year-old copper gold mine, it caved in, and 33 men were under that cave-in, trapped 23, could you imagine, 2,300 feet underground they were trapped. And so they originally thought there is no way those guys survived. That was their initial assessment. There's no way those guys survived, but even if they did, they would starve to death being that far down before anybody could get any help to them. That's what they thought, if ever. But... The Chilean people, they were so concerned over these men and their grief-stricken families that they said, hey, something's got to happen. And the national government took over the search and rescue operation because that company, I guess it's from Chile, they just financially were strapped and they couldn't put the resources in there to even give those guys a chance. So the national government took over. And what they did, I don't know if I remember this, they bore eight holes. They're just trying to figure out where these guys are and can they somehow through those holes get them any life support or whatever. They bore eight exploratory holes. And it took 17 days of doing that. And you know what happened? They sent that drill bit down one time and back it came with a note attached to the end of the drill bit written in red ink. And it said, we are well in the shelter, all 33 of us. At that point, they knew all of them were alive. And it took 69 days to get those guys out of there. And all 33 men were brought safely out in October. That happened in August. It took until October 2010 by this major winching operation that took 24 hours to finally get them out of there. And so these paramedics had gone down there to help them, and they had brought in, by this time, it's all national world news. I don't know if you all remember. I remember. It's on the national, everybody's following this around the world. And so all these national world organizations are sending their best men in there now to help. And so these paramedics that are the elite from the world and the military are down there, and they're still underground. And they reach those men, and they hold up a sign, and it's on the TV cameras, and it simply said, Mission accomplished, Chile. They all came out. And you know how many people were watching that? It says estimated there was over 1 billion people around the world on the Internet and TV are watching these guys being rescued, thought they were lost, and went to great expense and effort to find them. And what was everybody's reaction? Oh, man, why did it? That's, who cares? No. 
I mean, there's rejoicing all over the world. That is that we don't care about the other miners that never were trapped. That's not the point. It's just that there was a trauma. They were in a dangerous situation. And so the reaction is you are going to be just overthrilled. They're with their, I remember those guys coming out of there just as happy as could be. And their families just as happy as could be to see them. And everybody else is happy, happy, happy. All the world. And that's what the Lord's saying here. The whole world rejoiced because those men were saved, a special joy. And so why would he say what he says? We understand it now, right? Look in verse 13. And it is that if he finds one, I say unto you truly, he rejoices more of that one sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. So I'm saying if we can do that over a worldly event, how much more over somebody's spiritual eternal welfare? Praise God, we should be excited when they come back. And so in verse 14, Jesus says there, hey, I'm just telling you that what I just talked about, that shepherd, that is the heart of your heavenly father. That's the way he is, verse 14. Even so, just like I just told you, he's saying, even so, it is not the will or the pleasure of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Because he has got a heart, the heavenly father, Jesus came to show us what his heart is like, just like a good shepherd. And it's not his will or his pleasure that any of us in here that are his children should perish. Turn to Psalm 95. Here it describes the father as a shepherd. And we are his sheep. I want to look at two places in the Psalms. Psalm 95, and then we'll look at Psalm 119, the very last verse of Psalm 119. And Psalm 95 says this. Oh, we used to sing this song years back. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come in before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in his hand. And he talks about how great he is. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is also his. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Why? That's what this four tells us in verse seven. For he is our God, and we, us here in Shelbyville, are the people of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand, that hand that he just said holds everything in it, all the worlds, all the power. We're the sheep of that hand. That's how he holds us. And he says, and then here's the warning. He says, though, listen to him, though. If he's seeking you and calling you and you are astray, he's saying today, today, if you hear his voice trying to call you back, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with that generation and said, It is a people that do err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. He's saying, Just don't be like them. You hear him calling. He's God. He is our Lord. And we're the sheep of his pasture in his hand. And so if you hear his voice, he's saying, Don't harden your heart. He'll bring you back. He'll rejoice that you came back. That's what we just read. You don't have to be afraid of him. Be just like the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And so maybe you need to make this your prayer. Turn over to Psalm 119. 119 in the very last verse, right before 120. This would be a good prayer. 
tonight if you feel like you've gotten away from the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 176 says this, I have gone astray like how? Like a lost sheep. And he prays, seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. You think God would honor that prayer if you prayed that sincerely, if you've gotten away from him? I think he would. I know he would. So back to Matthew 18, we'll finish up here. So I'd say the father, based on what he said, he'll take any pains, any expense, go to any trouble to seek you out if you're his child. I'd do that for any of my children, any way I could. Old Thomas got in trouble, I'd come there to help him out. But you say to yourself, well, don't people have free will? What if they're not willing to come back? What if they hear that voice and they're just not going to do it? What is that? And they're one of his kids. Well, let me just say this. I, I believe God has a ways and means committee to make you willing. Ask Jonah. Ask Jonah. Jonah had gone far away from God's will. And Jonah's like, hey, I'm heading the other direction, Lord. You want me to go up there? I don't like those people. And I don't care that you like them. I'm headed the other way. <laughs> I'm headed to Tarshish. I'm running there. But guess what? God was running after him. And you're not going to outrun God. And Jonah wasn't able to outrun God. You know what he couldn't outrun? He couldn't outrun that wind that the Lord sent. And neither can you or I. Couldn't outrun that wind. You know the next thing that came, if you read the account, he sent a storm his way. And he wasn't going to outrun that storm either. And so God put it on those guys' hearts. Hey, they figured out where's, where's all this trouble coming from was this guy down there sleeping. Well, how can he be sleeping? Get him up there. Why aren't you calling upon your God like the rest of us? Oh, I'm, I'm your problem. I'm running for my God. And they're like, all right, well, we're throwing you overboard then. And so you can't outrun the wind. You can't outrun the storm. And you know what else he couldn't outrun? Or outswim, I guess. That great fish that swallowed him up. And if that's what it's going to take and you're his child and you've gotten away from the Lord, he will make a great fish and swallow you up. You know what Jonah prayed? He says, I am in the belly of hell. And sometimes God can make your chastisement like you are in the belly of hell. And it's like, I'm going to repent. That's what Jonah said. And he saw, hey, salvation's of the Lord. God will have mercy. And that's what he needed to cry out. So he'll do that for us. That's his love, isn't it? So you say, what if somebody's not willing? There used to be this old song, if you're not willing, he will make you willing. I don't remember the words to it, but this African would sing it. I thought it was a great song. Remember that? Manola. You're not willing, he'll make you willing <laughs> to obey. Why? He's telling us here in verse 14, because it's not the will of your father that any of his little ones would perish. And if he has to put you in the belly of hell and you're his child to get you straightened out and back right with him, he'll create a great fish for you. It's not too much trouble for him. He will do that. That's how much concern he has for the welfare of his children. So next week, we're going to look at the practical side. So we're saying God has shown us there that he cares about us and he will seek after us if we've gone astray. And we're going to see the practical side of these verses in the next section that we're going to study, which traditionally we've studied separately as church discipline or how to go to an erring brother. But all of this ties in together. That's why we're teaching the whole chapter. And so the way God many times seeks after that wandering person is through us. We're the instruments that he's going to use sometimes to demonstrate 
his heart to our brothers and sisters. And so people ask themselves, am I my brother's keeper? And I would just ask, are you made in the image of God? Then yes, you are. And yes, I am. We are our brother's keepers. We've been given, and we'll see this next time, God will seek after the lost, and he can do it in a lot of ways, but we also have a responsibility that many times he will use us to watch out for each other. But let me hasten to add, and we'll make sure we hasten to emphasize this next week, when we seek after that brother, it's to be done in love, not as Christian Nazis, because that can be an issue. So we're not going to have the SCA Gestapo. We're not going to create that as our new branch here, all right? And so we'll just see next week. Come back. Be glad if you do. We'll see that, how that's all worked out next week in our next little section there. And then the last teaching we'll have, we'll, we'll deal with unforgiveness. And it all ties in together. It all goes hand in hand. And that's how God's going to help us out by teaching us this way. So, amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this chapter that you've given us here that you can see and show us how you want us to walk as your children and the attitudes that we should have towards our brothers and sisters, your, the other children that you have and that you've placed here in this church, this outpost of your kingdom right here in Shelbyville, Shelbyville Christian Assembly. And we, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll put in all of our hearts to welcome and receive each other and not to despise or look down on anybody that's in the church that calls themselves a Christian, that we will treat them as we would treat you and love them and pray for them. And if we see them erring, that we'll pray for them in love and just ask you to give them life and rejoice that we can see them repent and that we will because you'll honor your word. And you promised, you gave us a promise that if we ask that according to your will, you'll hear us and that we can have that petition. And so we thank you, Lord, that you're showing us that you're a God of holiness, you're a God of justice, but you're also a God of love that is concerned about all of us here individually as a group, but also individually you are concerned about each of us. And we just thank you for showing us that from your word tonight and making that real to us. And we just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.